Today we catch up with an old friend of mine, Ian Anais. Ian is the founder and CEO of Zing Drone Delivery and is working to capitalize on the capabilities of consumer-grade drones. Ian's passion and dedication to drones, coupled with an entrepreneurial soul and software expertise, make him exceptionally well-positioned to do well in this age-old industry, delivery. Enjoy. So what is Zing Drone Delivery? So thanks for having me, Brendan. And um, Zing is a drone delivery platform that enables pilots to make deliveries with the same drones they already own. So we build autonomous flight software and plug and play hardware that transforms the most common drones on the market into delivery drones. So if you're familiar with DJI, DJI is the, they kind of have a monopoly on the consumer drone market right now, as well as they're getting into the enterprise space. Um, and, and they own about 92% of that drone market. So basically what we do, in other words, is we transform those same drones that are already owned by the vast majority of those licensed pilots into autonomous delivery drones that can carry packages and basically enable those pilots to earn compensation from doing deliveries. Very interesting. So you have almost an Uber model, and this also reminds me of what George, George Hotz did with his autonomous car driving software where he had a bit of hardware that you would plug into the car as opposed to the Tesla approach where it's built in that enabled the car to do all sorts of things. So you have a hardware component and a software component that's part of the business. And both of those enable you to do these autonomous deliveries, um, whether it be you know, chicken tenders or your medications or whatever, we can go into a little bit more kind of the deliveries you've done so far, what you think people are most, what, what is most in demand to be delivered via a drone or what is well positioned to be delivered by a drone. Um, that's great. I guess yeah. what was the, your background is in software predominantly. Is that, yeah. Per, yep. Yes. So yes. the hardware component, how has that all played out? When did, when did that come into the picture as a necessity for the business? Um, and how closely have you been involved on the development of that? Yeah, so as you mentioned prior, I've always been on the software side. Like I went to Florida State, got my degree in computer science. And ever since high school, I've been doing like iOS app development. And that's kind of how I got into the drone space was um, I was making an iOS app for this guy who wanted to do a real estate photography app, kind of like a, a network of drone pilots where um, realtors could get connected with local drone pilots and go out and take photos for them. So he actually gave me my first drone. It was a little DJI drone. And that's where I saw like the true potential of what these things could do, like capable of flying three miles away from the remote controller, 35 miles an hour. When you let go of the sticks, it's just perfectly stable in the air. And it can also carry a pretty good amount of weight for those same ones that you can buy at like a standard Best Buy. So basically um, with the software side, I once I had the idea, um, well, to backtrack a little bit, the way I had the idea was I was actually flying the drone uh, probably like 200, 300 feet in the air. And I had my first person view camera, 
which is like the instant view of what the drone is seeing on its camera feed on your iPad or iPhone. And I was looking down on the city and I could see like restaurants, like a Taco Bell on one side of my screen. And then I saw like a neighborhood on the other side of the screen. And I was like, what if I just go down to this Taco Bell, pick something up and deliver it to the neighborhood and then fly back and then just swap out my battery and I can do it all over again. So that's where the spark came. And I was, it was one of those ideas that I just couldn't stop thinking about. It was just like, I have a lot of ideas, but some ideas just really stick. And this one stuck for like at least a week. I kept thinking about it and doing more research. And the more research I did, the bigger of an opportunity, it seemed like a, like an overlooked opportunity in the market. So I, um, as I started developing the software for the app side to make the deliveries, um, like I was using their DJI SDK, I figured out how to make it fly autonomously from point A to point B. So I had the drone flying directly to spots with like waypoint missions, but I was missing that hardware. So I knew the hardware was necessary because there has to be something to actually attach the package to the drone. So I started off by actually going to a place called um, Tampa Hackerspace. It's like a uh, kind of like a hardware hacker space in downtown Tampa. And uh, they like work on different, they have a CNC machining thing. They have a bunch of 3D printers in there. They've, and they basically specialize in creating products from scratch. So that's how I kind of got started with it. And I had this really kind of like janky setup where it was like a basket where I had two pieces of a basket attached to each other and then a magnet that held the basket together. And I would like put a Jimmy John sandwich in there, something like that. And uh, that's where it really got started. And looking back on it, that I'm surprised the drone even flew with that thing attached to it. <laughs> but um, So you've you iterated that, since. You got, you got a much better model now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We've gone through like a few iterations because after that, I was like, we need something professionally made here. Like, this is not going to cut it. So I went, I went to um, Upwork and I found like a 3D designer and um, he, I, I came up with this concept where it was like a, a box, a 3D printed box that attaches directly to the bottom of the drone and has like a little door, a hinge door that opens up and uh, spent a lot of money getting that thing developed. And then I, I eventually, the guy was like, I don't think this is going to be able to get 3D printed. There's a bunch of different challenges with it. So I eventually bought my own 3D printer to like bring this thing to life. So it was like a giant, like 400 millimeter by 400 millimeter 3D printer. And I was like, he sent me the STL file, which is just a 3D file. And he's like, here, you can try and print it. So <laughs> I pressed go on the printer. And um, after about 12 hours, the thing came out and it was exactly like it looked like in a 3D model. Um, and it was just like the product had come to life sort of. And uh, so I got like, I became very knowledgeable about the hardware side, like the 3D printing side at least. So um, after that, uh, we, we eventually, well, it's kind of a funny story because I put this out online. I started selling it. And then someone actually sent me an email of 
a product that they designed, which was like very similar. Uh, and it was kind of like a, a sort of a copy of what I had spent so much money developing. So I was angry, but at the same time, I wanted to like learn about how this guy had developed it. And I was like, what if I could get this guy to join the team? Cause he was like bragging about like developing it in like a couple hours in the email. So I, his name's Oward. He's now like our head of engineering. Um, so he joined on the team and became like that 3D design guy. And I've been working really closely with him. And uh, more recently, we've gone through to like the next step, which is an electronic winch that will actually attach to these common drones that kind of like brings the package all the way up to the drone. And then you just push a button on your on the app and then it just drops it all the way down like 15 feet and uh, actually drops off the package without anyone touching the package. So I've been working closely with him, learning all about that hardware side. No, that's great. So the whole vision from that, I think that was a great explanation of the, the initial idea on top of the background that led you to it. So just to rewind a little bit, what year was it when you met this retail guy that you were doing a side project with? So uh, that was, I was still an undergrad. Uh, I think I was a senior. So I think that was around 2017 where I met him. And then in 2018 is when I founded Zing. So it took a year from the, the aha moment where you're looking at Taco Bell and you're hungry for a taco. And you look, you also see on the, the camera feed that your house is a mile away and you say that would be yeah. incredibly valuable. Yeah, around a year since, uh, around a year of a gap there. And I had been a part of like a few different startups throughout my undergrad. So I started seeing like that uh, it wasn't impossible to create a business. Like like a lot of the time you think like, oh, this this business, they're, they're like, uh, it's some like far-fetched thing to try and create a business around something. But uh, seeing like a, a lot of different people try and start a business, go through the process, I, w I just was able to see that yeah, it's definitely possible as long as you give it a shot to uh, build something. Yeah, and you've been building for a while. Like I said, I, we'll get into it a little bit, but you had, I, I think Atmo was the name of the other company and you had been building some iOS apps. Um, so this iOS development path is what enabled you to be able to have these ideas, I think most people do, and translate them into a reality as well as obviously a lot of hard work but to your point, it is very possible mm -hmm. to build these businesses. And I think a lot of people discredit themselves in their abilities to be able to learn the skills, or even if they already have the skills, to then be able to go and say, well, I couldn't build a business. Like I, I have this idea for an app, but I, I couldn't build it. And I, what, what would that require? Mm -hmm. And I do like that uh, personality trait. And you just but yeah, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have this idea. I'm going to go try to do it. It's really admirable. So... When you had mentioned that you build this contraption out of uh, 3D printing, and by the way, the, the fact that it worked the first time is shocking. I've 3D printed some things before, and it just becomes a, a wiry plastic mess. Um, yeah. So yeah. there's there's a strike of luck for sure on the first print. But you spend all this time developing this thing, and inevitably you find out that there's some guy who had done it overnight, apparently, and was really good. And you said at that point you were also actually trying to sell this thing, meaning the 
the contraption that you had built, the hardware piece that you had built, or the actual service where you were delivering? So I was trying to sell the actual contraption. Um, so I initially, we've kind of positioned ourselves as like a direct to consumer sales model where we sell these contraptions directly to pilots who want to make deliveries uh, wherever they want, kind of like, um, so we've sold them all over the world right now. Like uh, we have uh, customers in a few different countries and um, a lot here in the United States who are just doing their own delivery operations, kind of whatever they want to do. But um, that platform model that I was talking about, that's kind of like the next step. That's uh, this direct con to consumer model is kind of just our revenue generating um, Let's keep model for on. now. Keeping the lights on, uh, buying our ramen. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That makes a lot of sense to me. And that's a very organic way to do it. At least you were able to finagle your way. And I think cleverly into a model where you could start generating revenue right away. And then you layered on top of that, the software slash platform solution where you're developing a solution that can deliver things Uber style with drones, you know, in, in, in a way like that. Yeah, and, and uh, even this current model, like allowing pilots to use the app, test it out, it's kind of like a, in a way, a beta. Uh, even though we're selling directly to these pilots, or even in some cases, giving them the kits for free, um, it's it's just like gathering that data, uh, going through iterations of the app, going through iterations of the hardware, preparing it for this next stage of platform deliveries once the regulations are are there for to make it happen yeah let, let's dive a little bit into the regulations so what obviously a very new industry the when i knew i was having you on i was excited to talk about this company specifically because you're innovating in an industry that's as old as human businesses are delivery of goods whether that was uh, you know a, a bunch of blueberries to someone back in the village or obviously modern day packages from Amazon, things like that. The logistics and delivery industry has been around forever. And here's this new bit of technology, drones, that allows you to do it in a different or novel or quicker way, which is really attractive to me, um, at least exciting. And I know you have a, a large passion for drones, which is is great. And I think that makes you a very solid founder for this. It's not like I had the idea for a drone company that did this and had no background with drones and said, I'm just going to do it. There is something that really gives a company an edge when the founder is actively going to conferences and is they're engaged in the community um, that gives you, I would argue, a leg up for sure. Yeah. And I, I believe like if you want to be a founder in, in an industry, you have to become an expert in that same industry. You have to know everything about it in order to make the moves before your competitors. Like you have to be on the cutting edge of the industry, especially a nascent industry like drone delivery. You have to be completely in touch, know like the ins and outs of all the regulations because once an opportunity does arise, you have to be the first to jump on it. You can't watch another company jump on it first and, um, and that's another thing, like with specifically with Zing, there, there was a common assumption out there in the drone delivery market that a lot of the stuff 
that we're doing now is either illegal or impossible under the current regulations. But the FAA has actually, since we've started doing these deliveries, taken, I think, a second look at the regulations that they actually wrote. And they're like, okay, here it actually says that we will allow drone deliveries under these circumstances in this in this specific handbook that that we made so um there there's a lot of like loopholes and things that you can find once you really dig into an industry um and with drone delivery regulations i mean this has been an evolving thing for um i since about like 2012 i mean we got in about 2018 but there's still a little bit of history to the regulations so in like 2012 say you had like a dji wasn't really around you had kind of drones that were just kind of fixed wing or when you flew them they weren't very stable would get blown around with the wind and stuff like that and you would need to get something from the faa called a uh, section 333 exemption and that would let you fly say beyond visual line of sight fly over people fly in a certain area um and then in 2016, the FAA came out with this whole new framework that like really opened up commercial drones called the Part 107 regulations. So Part 107 is kind of like, if you wanna fly a drone in the US airspace and you wanna make money doing it, you have to have a Part 107 license. So that has been the pathway for like, if you wanna do like real estate photography, if you wanna do, um, inspections anything like that and there's been over as of today 200,000 pilots in the united states who have gone through the part 107 license process and it's not an easy process either you have to study for i'd say weeks learn all about like general aviation terms and things like that you have to know the regulations really well in order to pass this like 150 dollar test and once you pass that test then the FAA will send you a license the same way they send like a, uh, a private pilot a license like for flying real planes or a commercial pilot a license for flying planes. And it's a physical like driver's license, but it's actually a pilot's license. So within those regulations, the FAA has said, which was what was overlooked, I think mainly in the industry, that um, you can do deliveries with that license as long as you follow all the other regulations so say like the main limiting ones are like uh flying within the pilot's visual line of sight so the pilot has to be able to see the drone at all times to maneuver it away from manned aircraft another one is uh flying over people you can't fly over people and you can't fly over moving vehicles you can fly over stationary vehicles and um people who are undercover but you cannot fly over like open air of someone just walking down the street, at least with the um, without a waiver. So the FAA has created, started creating a pathway towards the drone deliveries that might be thought of if you were to think like of a, just a drone going straight from a warehouse directly to a home and dropping it off in front of the house. Uh, so that's called the Part 135 certification that's a path towards beyond visual line of sight drone delivery operations or autonomous drone delivery operations. Um, and there's actually three companies in the United States who have already got this certification. 
who are now doing operations within like a closed environment with this part 135. So doing beyond visual line of sight, autonomous stuff um, with pilots that are actually located inside of like a shipping container, watching a uh, desktop computer, just monitoring the flight. And so, what does it require to get one of those? Is it like an early access certification? Do you have to be a company with a certain amount of revenue and a certain backing? What is the requirements to get the Part 135 certification? So the requirements for Part 135, um, so like right now, uh, it's kind of like a two-phase process. Well, first, the drone that you're using for these operations has to go through the type certification process. The type certification process is the same process that a Boeing 747 has to go through with the FAA to verify that it's safe. So you can imagine that that's a pretty expensive process. So there's what about would that entail exactly. So it, it would basically be you have to write up flight manuals, you have to write up safety specs, you have to say exactly what components are in the drone and then verify that your manufacturer will create those exact same components every single time, verify that the software remains exactly the same um, throughout all the versions of the drone that you use. Um, so it's basically like um, after you do that, after you create the flight manuals, you have to actually go out to the FAA's like flight testing center and you have to put in like i'd say 2000 hours flying the drone without any safety incident whatsoever if there's anything at all that goes wrong the whole process has to start over and this process can be anywhere from like $150,000 to 2 million dollars but the, what we're trying to do is well there's two pathways like either we can go down this part 135 route to do autonomous operations or we can leverage the existing regulations that 200,000 pilots already have their license to fly under and find those like unique use cases that we can kind of use an Uber Eats style model where all right we already have like we have already have I'd say over 5,000 pilots who have expressed interest through our website uh, like a, through a form and saying they have a DJI drone, they want to do deliveries and um, just leverage that network of pilots who have a drone sitting on their shelf collecting dust and now allow them to start using that same drone to make deliveries. But if we were to go down the part 135 route, which I think we eventually will, we'll utilize a type certified drone. So a company that already they're a manufacturer that's going through the type cert process, which is the main expense. So, and I was going to say, it sounds the type process sounds like something that would not be the burden for your company or the companies that are trying to leverage drones to do these sorts of things, but rather it would be in the manufacturer's best interest, say DJI, to go through this process. Is that typically how you've seen it work, where DJI is the one going through this? time and resource intensive process to get the certification? Yes, so I mean, companies like DJI, so manufacturers, they're the ones typically going through this process. However, DJI is a Chinese company and there's a lot of political implications to a Chinese company trying to get a US certification. So, I mean, they're, 
they DJI believes that even if they try to go through this type certification route, that they wouldn't be able to actually get the type cert. So that creates a challenge where the current software that we use is built on the DJI platform. So really right now, the only way you can use DJI drones for delivery operations is under the part 107 regulations. So, so that's why it's favorable for you to leverage that network of the 5,000 individuals who, like you said, have drones collecting dust to implement yeah. your solution in a way that does meet the criteria of these niche use cases. Yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty much it. Like there's part 107 pilots all around the United States who have these drones who, who want to use them, but the photography market's becoming extremely saturated. Uh, basically inspections are also becoming saturated. So there's, when you have 200,000 pilots, you typically have like hundreds of pilots in every city who are competing for the same work for photography. So we're, we're trying to op offer this new option where pilots can make a fixed rate making these deliveries. So, and it's, a I guess drive when you want sort of thing, similar to an Uber where I can log on at a certain yeah. log on at a certain time or it might be scheduled have you thought about the logistics on that side i'm sure yeah so i mean it's uh that that is how we want to do it offer some flexibility to the pilot and let them fly on an hourly basis um but right now we're trying to find those unique use cases where drone delivery does make sense within the visual line of sight so like uh right now in saint pete we have a spot where uh there's this very unique situation where you have like a uh, a river or some other kind of waterway where there's just like a uh, long area where there's no bridge to go across that river. Uh, so to actually go around the river would take a 20 to 30 minute one way drive or it would take like, a, you know, up to an hour round trip. So that's where we found some really unique spots in new orleans which has the mississippi river running through it and saint pete which has this passive grill channel that runs through it um so right there we've like pretty much taken what would be a, an hour long um well in this case of new orleans an hour long round trip and we've shortened it down to a two minute drone flight so from downtown New Orleans to an outside neighborhood called Algiers Point, we've basically taken this, what all these all these restaurants in um, downtown that previously could, did not have access to those customers or didn't have that as a revenue stream, can now send stuff directly over that Mississippi River and get access to a new customer base. So this is where it starts making sense for the businesses to get involved, especially with uh, creating this instant kind of delivery and that's right. um yeah the instant delivery is something that sets drone delivery apart from its closest competitors which i would say would be like same day delivery so same day delivery is something recently by amazon where i mean of course they had like two day delivery previously it was like three day delivery mm -hmm. but people want things faster they want things now right so with drones our, our eventual use case, um, now that regulations are starting to change a little bit, um, basically having a pilot stationed on top of say like a CVS or a Walgreens or a convenience store 
and anywhere within a mile or two miles of that convenience store, they can make those instant deliveries. So five minutes or less directly to your house, things like that. That's where we're seeing the real value, like closest um, delivery time for something like CVS or Walgreens. Somebody has to get ready, drive out there, pick up the item, deal with traffic, drive all the way back. When you need something quick, it's not convenient, or uh, you can order it through something like Instacart. Instacart will take a minimum of like two hours. So, I mean, that's uh, that's the current competitive landscape for the instant kind of deliveries, which I think is where drones really start to make sense. Yeah, absolutely. That speed, that instant access to what the consumer wants. It sounds like you've certainly found a little bit little valuable pocket there. I was just yeah. in Jacksonville a month ago, and they have the St. John's River that goes right down the center of it. And there are plenty of bridges, bridges that connect each side, but there certainly does seem to be certain points where it might take you longer to get to that bridge or whatever, where this could also be valuable. It might be worth looking into that over there. I'm sure you're prospecting other places that have this exact niche spot where it is very valuable to have a drone because it can cut on 40 minutes, an hour, two hours on delivery time. Yeah, and there's, I, I think the stat is there's over 3 million miles of river in the United States. So I think that uh, places like Jacksonville, the St. John's River, yeah, I mean, we've already got pilots out there who have done a couple of deliveries. So I think, uh, and they haven't actually used that delivery route yet, but I mean, finding places like that, that's where we can do stuff right now that with the current regulations, it's, it's basically like we can actually do it without getting any extra certifications or waivers. It's just possible today. For the software folks here, a lot of solving this problem was software and your background's iOS. Speak a little bit on the biggest hurdles you've had that weren't obviously the regulations, but maybe how long it took you to build from ideation to here's a solution and possibly also the hurdles that you faced going through the build process. Yeah. So, I mean, of course, with building an iOS app, um, the, one of the biggest hurdles is always the Apple review process, like Apple review, even if you build out the entire app and you're happy with the app, sometimes they'll come back and say, they'll just say no after you spent all this time building it. So that was definitely a hurdle throughout the development process was getting through that Apple review. Um, so for the software people out there, um, with building an app like this, uh, since you're using actually with uh, DJI, you have to actually plug the iPhone into the remote controller of the dr for the drone. So you have to go through a special process called the MFI process with Apple. And uh, that basically, you send in all the like the IDs of the different drones that you want to use, and then your app gets approved to actually use third-party devices. Um, so that was a challenge. And then um, actually developing the app, I mean, it was a very iterative process. So like the first version of the app that I developed was just to get that, to get the drone to go from one point to another. And um, so that, that was uh, like just a button and a view, like a standard DJI SDK view, and you just pushed a button and the drone would fly directly to that spot. And then over time, I would add more and more features. I eventually created a little dashboard where you could like 
press launch, return home, abort mission, basic commands like that. I tried to make it very minimal and user-friendly. I wanted this to be as user-friendly as possible so that pilots could like go on here, see the user interface and immediately know how to use the app. And then, um, so that building out that it, it took time, but uh, I think over time I started using different SDKs like the AirMap SDK to get like spatial awareness. So like leveraging SDKs, I think is very powerful. So with the AirMap SDK, we got like full, a full map showing like where all the schools, hospitals, and um, like prisons were, and then also the controlled airspace and what altitude you can fly in certain areas. And that's just a few lines of code to just implement that into the app. And that's one of the major components of our app today. And then um, actually using those SDKs can eventually lead to really good partnerships as well. So now we're a partner with AirMap and they actually features, feature us on their website and that gets us some traffic as well. So building out everything from scratch is not always the right move. And then um, also um, we eventually now have our ordering app. So developing an ordering app from scratch, that's very hard to do, especially if you want to integrate like Apple Pay and things like that. So um, we actually leveraged a, a template project from, we found it online, paid like a fixed price and then just downloaded the template product project and then made modifications to that template project. And so like just getting the license for that and then using that could be a powerful way to save a lot of development time. Like um, that, and that was the, one of the main things is development time and uh, debugging and things like that, especially when it's your own product, it can be frustrating, um, but you have to, you have to go through it. I mean, um, it it took a long time, took a lot of struggling, many sleepless nights trying to figure out tiny bugs. But um, once you get there, it's totally worth it. Yeah, a day in the life of a software developer is figuring out figuring out those tiny bugs. Um, yeah, I can't tell you how many times. I think when most people have an idea for a new application, people do tend to think that their idea is novel. And for that reason, sometimes you do go down a path where you write your own code for something that is already a highly optimized SDK. And all of a sudden, you find it one day, similar to you finding the guy who had the hardware for your project. Mm -hmm. And you're like, well, that was time wasted. I think these are things that are mm -hmm. hard to avoid, honestly, because on the early, in the early stages of development, it's hard to even articulate your idea to yourself in full clarity. So to even search for an SDK sometimes that does what you want it to do, it could even be that a small slice of that SDK does what you need and it just isn't yeah. marketed very well through the SDK. Um, I've used yes. many SDKs that have a small piece of them that isn't even part of the main portion of offerings that are extremely valuable. Um, and you'd hope to get a smaller package size by finding another SDK or something that does that exact little thing, but especially in the building phase where you're just trying to get a proof of concept, really, uh, that can be very valuable. It's taking the yeah. time to search for it and watching your own biases where I have a brand new idea, no one's thought of it, or you just think it's valuable and you get carried away. And being devs, we absolutely tend to just write it on our own. I have an idea, the 
being empowered and having the skills to be able to build things can be a double-edged sword in that sense because you can end up wasting your time whereas it could already have been done by someone or even if it is you decide not to deal with it because you could do it a little bit better and that adds two three four months to a project potentially uh, so these are yeah. all the trade-offs and i'm sure you've gone through many 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 of those headaches and why did i why did i spend all that time doing that type of moments yeah it's so true and i mean over over time like as you mentioned getting the product to work initially that's the most important you got to have something you got to have an mvp a minimum viable product that just works it might be buggy but you got to have like uh when i was developing like i i don't know if this is best practice but i mean like just to get it to work just busting out code just to um like uh just kind of like having kind of a skeleton of something that's not optimized that just the code just works it's not pretty code but over time you can kind of improve the readability of it and um you know like modularize it kind of um like but initially it was just like a big lump of code like just one function like let's get this thing to actually do what i want it to so then striving for like perfection in your code initially can slow you down um so i initially when i write code i like to just um get it get it something out working and then later on refactor it so that it becomes something much more readable much cleaner that somebody later on could look at this and say okay uh, i know what this code does it might even be like self-documenting now where i can see like how this code actually works so that's that's definitely something i would recommend if you're creating your own product to just get it to work first before like refactoring and modularizing it and then um over time, just make it look nice. Absolutely. Seeing is believing a lot with any kind of product or service. Once you see the thing working, even if it is hobbling along, so to speak, is yeah. what gives you the inspiration and kind of um, the wind behind you to keep going with it. Having That's worked so in, in large companies, I think one thing that is sometimes undervalued is a hackathon sort of approach where we have an existing suite of products or line of products and we want to add a new feature to one of them or create a new product entirely. I would often opt for, let's have a two-week hackathon that two or three guys or even the lone, the lone soldier goes on and puts something together, puts the idea for the product together in a week, a month or whatever and gets the proof of concept and says, here, this is something that is possible. Oftentimes you do go down the path where you are building something and you tend to over-engineer and then you end up in the place where you're worrying much more about the code than you are the functionality. And that makes your efforts futile altogether where the product actually doesn't even materialize. Um, can you speak to the journey from idea to product or service, right? It's, it's riddled with all sorts of impediments. And kind of like we're saying now, there's plenty of things that can stop you along the way. Uh, I'm sure you have stories, maybe even advice for weathering the storm when something is not going exactly how you wanted it to. Yeah, so, oh yeah. 
I'm remembering something now where things often do not go how you plan them out to. And especially during live demos, that's when things really start to go wrong. Like if anything could go wrong, it's going to be during a live demo. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah. so I remember this one time where I actually was, I, I went out to that uh, St. Pete spot I had mentioned before to kind of do one of the initial river deliveries over the waterway there. So I called up the owner of one of the local restaurants and I told him about what we were going to do and kind of like the platform and stuff like that. And he seemed really interested. And so I went out there to the spot. I was about to make the delivery. And um, at the time we were using like this, um, a little device that attaches to the drone that is actually like a sling that will hold like a long wire down from the bottom of the drone. So while I was trying to attach the line to this device, the device actually snapped in half. And I was like, oh no, this is not good because that's, that device like keeps everything leveled underneath the drone. So then, um, and actually getting out there was a challenge because it was like a half mile walk for the guy. He was still in like his work uniform, but he was filming the whole thing. He was super excited to see it go. And I was like, you know what? I, I have to do this still. I, I, even though the device is broken, I need to send this thing across send this, uh, like I think it was a hamburger or something. And, uh, so I basically rigged it on there so that it was attached. It, it was a DJI Phantom, so it had like two little legs on the bottom. I rigged the line onto the two legs, took off. Initially, everything looked good. I was like, all right, so this, I think we can fly across. And then when I send it out over the water, everything starts going wrong. Like the drone starts spinning out of control. The hamburger's swinging back and forth. And then um, the drone decides it wants to land when it's about halfway over the river. So I, I was like, Oh no. So I start like heading back to shore as fast as I can. And then, um, basically the drone is descending. Like I can't control the descent, like the DJI is forcing it to go down. And so it's like flying back full speed right before it gets back to the shore. Hamburger hits the water drone jolts forward. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> and then, well, the package didn't actually come off, so the hamburger, the package got heavy, like really heavy with the water. Right. So then the drone's trying to move around, but it's stuck to this hamburger that's also stuck in the water. And so the, basically the drone's like starting to go really close to the water. And I was like, oh, my God, there goes like a $1,500 drone. And then um, by this time, the guy is done filming. He's just like watching in disbelief. <laughs> and then um, somehow the the hamburger falls out of the bottom of the package. So now the hamburger is floating in the water, like a bun, a couple buns here and there, some fries floating around. A little bit of lettuce. I think there was even some like seagulls diving down and grabbing this stuff. Oh my <laughs> goodness! Already already capitalizing on the the clunkiness of a new venture. Seagulls are the yeah. ultimate opportunists. <laughs> yep, <laughs> it's so true. And then. Like the uh, the drone was almost in the water. The hamburger came off, so the weight got released, and then I was able to get back control and brought the drone back home. So I was able to recover the drone, but that was not a good experience for a live demo. And then, oh, um, what an experience! And this was <laughs> was this one of the first few demos you had yes. ever done? Yeah. So that uh, even though that was like a epic fail, it 
each each one of those is I think is a valuable learning experience. So I I learned a lot about what not to do in that situation. So um yeah, even though it was an epic fail, I still learned a lot. And then um yeah, so but that that really opened the doorway for a lot more of the stuff that we st- have started to do, like our New Orleans delivery, um, where we made five back-to-back successful deliveries of beignets across the Mississippi River. And uh, awesome. if we didn't if we didn't make that big fail, I I think that we could have failed on a much bigger stage. So I'm glad we had to fail in front of one person. Yeah, fail small and pivot. That's I'm really glad you shared that story. I think a lot of people will find that one funny. So some of the background leading up to this, just so some of the people can kind of gather. Here's a guy who has got a drone business. He has been successful with iOS application development. When did you start iOS development? So I started iOS development when I was in high school. I um, would make my own little apps. Like I've, I've always had kind of an entrepreneurial spirit and I saw that the app market back then was, it was kind of like a gold rush where people were making like uh, paid apps. They were making in-app purchases. Nowadays, it's very hard to get someone to pay for an app or do an in-app purchase. But back then people were more willing to pay like 99 cents or $1.99. So I made like a, a GPA calculator. I made a couple different like astronomy apps stuff that was like kind of like tool sets that people could use and they had in-app purchases to like extend the functionality. So that's where I got started with iOS development. And then eventually when I went to undergrad here at FSU, I um, started really working with startups on like a freelancing basis on an hourly basis. And that's where I learned a lot about like the development process for like a small business of developing apps and what the capabilities had to be and stuff like that. Yeah. So you were always good too. speaking of the things that can keep you going through a lot of the ruts, you were constantly publishing these applications and people were using them and downloading them and best case buying something from them or to use them in general. That'll keep you going for sure. The little incentives to get you kicked back and people actually using it. I've made, I remember when I was younger, high school and college, making little apps, and it is uh, somewhat discouraging when you make something and no one's using it, and that's a marketing problem mostly, or your idea was just a bit of a flop, uh, but always great to publish something and have it be utilized in any sort of a way that will keep the fire burning within you to keep doing the development or make something that's even better, and to your point, uh, until you have a soggy hamburger, you don't learn the lessons of what you've created or where you're at exactly like what's what's the current state of what i've built here yeah i think that's something that's really powerful is to like see people using the application like when i was doing stuff on the app store i created a few different apps that had like zero users it was it was very discouraging but then i started recognizing like things that people like want to use are not like things that at the same time as a developer, you might think that the market wants to use because you kind of put your own subjective kind of thoughts into the development of it. So I eventually created this app that was like a, uh, I call it like the road trip gas price calculator or something like that. And basically you would just put in the number of miles for your road trip 
and it would calculate like the average price of gas along the route. And then it would just tell you like, all right, here's how much money you would spend on gas for your road trip. And that started becoming, that started blowing up. Like I got like 5,000 downloads in like the first week. And then all of a sudden it's, I'm getting thousands and thousands of downloads. I'm like, what the heck? Like this, this, there's something about certain apps that make them blow up. And I think that having that kind of, like kind of like a little bit of marketing experience initially kind of has helped me determine stuff or at least kind of get a feel for like what the market likes with advertising and things like that. Yeah. And speaking from experience, I just drove from Jacksonville, Florida to Utah. That was a 32 hour trip and it would have at least been novel to see what the cost of gas would have been. Uh, I know now there's, other apps that have waypoints on where you should stop to get gas based on the size of your tank and miles per gallon and all these things. But there's certainly a bit of novelty to that idea where even if you're driving five hours, it's downloading an app quickly and figuring out how much that gas would cost is something that would take a little bit of work out of someone. And if you can automate that and Frank downloads it and says, this is great, sends it to his friend, that novelty to that idea probably is what gave it its virality. Uh, but yeah, there was something about it. Something about it made it have that virality. And then, uh, yeah, just stuff that like, uh, stuff that's novel stuff that everyday people would use it, it, There's something about like little things that, uh, really catch people's eye adds that like network effect where, especially if people start sharing it with each other, that's when stuff can start really blowing up. Yeah, yeah. If you can find the network effects or the economies of scale, and you have a product or service that has a low marginal cost of reproduction, where it costs you either nothing or pennies to have the server running to process requests or whatever it is, it's a good model to be in. Can you speak a little bit to, you have made all these different apps with users in them. Oftentimes people can create the functionality for an app, but they hit the things like developing a user system, um, getting people to register, log on, all of those things, having the database of them. Is there any particular service framework or platform that you would recommend based on all these different experiences that is quick to get up and running for someone who is maybe going through that startup process and maybe has hit that hurdle where it's a little bit discouraging? What's a way that you recommend to get a user system up and running quickly? I'd say Firebase. Firebase allows you to, um, it, you can quickly create a user authentication system on iOS. Um, so basically they have boilerplate code where basically you just make the signup page. You set up a simple user interface with the signup page. You have like your, um, your, you can add like a login with Facebook button, login with Google button, um, or you can add a sign in with email, or you can even sign in the user anonymously in order to just track data about that specific profile or that specific session. So I think that Firebase is really quick to get up and running with um, a simple authentication service, but then at the same time, they also have their real-time database service, which lets you get up and running with like a quick and easy uh, database setup where you can just, if 
like say if you want to access something in the database it's basically like searching or parsing through a json structure um rather than getting up and running with like this new database kind of structure or um they also have a new service now called um firebase uh firestore which uses a no sql approach so whether you like sql or no sql i think firebase could be a good option for getting up and running with both a, a database and with authentication an authentication service yeah that's great let's talk a little bit about contracting quickly here you said you did some freelancing um you've also worked for companies as a full or part-time employee as a software developer talk a little bit about the pros and cons of each and maybe some of the experiences you've had that you liked didn't like um for someone who's either a software developer full-time now for a small or large company or is currently a contractor and started off that way maybe open up the blinds a little bit for people who haven't done both or are curious about both yeah so there's definitely pros and cons to each um so as i'm currently a contractor with all the software stuff that i do so the pros to being a contractor are extremely flexible of course um you can charge an hourly rate that can be competitive and i mean you can kind of work you can kind of set the scope for how much you want to work based on the projects that you accept um but at the same time it's hard to earn an income that's comparable to what you could earn as being an employee of a of a small or medium company or even a large company i mean the competitive salaries now with software like 60k maybe at like a base level for kind of ios stuff up to 120k like in order to make 120k as a contractor you got to be working a lot of hours and you got to have projects coming down the pipeline so there's often times where there's no projects uh in front of you where it's 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 really like running a business where sometimes you got to market yourself you got to have that personal brand and you got to start um accepting jobs and once the jobs are over you got to you got to find another job or else you're without income for that period of time so being a contractor can be very challenging but at the same time it's if you are starting up a business you have that flexibility to take calls during the day when your business requires or you can um go to conferences things like that you have a lot more flexibility as a contractor and you can work from anywhere um theoretically if if, if you want to do like remote work being a contractor is a big plus or be say like a digital nomad and travel the world you could be a contractor but the main con is that lack of a sustainable income uh, or a sustained income that so if if you desire like um comfort and uh, having like a stable source of income i'd say being an employee is definitely the right initial route and then something that i've done over time is switch from like where at Colio, where i used to be a full-time employee i switched over to being a contractor so a lot of the time with like a medium size or a large company you need to establish trust with them first and then once you establish that trust, maybe they'll let you switch over to being a contractor and work on your own time 
be a little more flexible with the hours. So I would definitely recommend if you're starting a business to have a stable source of income, but then as that business starts to grow, as that, as you reach ramen profitability, as they call it, start to switch more over to freelancing, contracting, things like that, where you have more flexibility to try and grow the business during, during typical business hours. So from nine to five, because that's when everybody else is doing business. So you typically have to be available during those hours to take calls and things like that. Yeah. And that availability is a great point too. If you're trying to juggle all of those things, speaking of juggling. So Ian obviously has Zing, he does some contracting, but he also is just about wrapping up a master's degree. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I got a few different things going on. Um, but yeah, so this master's degree is at Jim Rand College at Florida State. Uh, it's a brand new college over here. It's the actually the first entrepreneurship college in the United States. Um, that a lot of colleges have like an entrepreneurship school. But this here is actually it's a standalone college for entrepreneurship. Um, one of the alumni from Florida State invested $100 million to get this program started here. Um, and he, he basically saw a lot of potential for entrepreneurs in like the education system because a lot of people have this perception of entrepreneurship programs that rather than actually go through back to school, you should just start your own business, like uh, get the experiential kind of side of it. But actually going through this program and seeing like the academic side, there's, there's a lot of researchers out there who have like really honed in on like exactly why startups fail. Like they go into detail on like, here's a thousand startups across the United States. Here's the exact reasons why each one of them failed. Here's how to avoid that things like that. So it, it helps prepare you for avoiding common pitfalls and mistakes that are, that have been seen as well as like, I've taken classes about like HR, like preparing for HR as an entrepreneur in like a start startup. Like uh, we learned about prototyping, getting to a uh, generally available product. So that this was actually a one year program. So I started last August and in about, uh, I think three weeks now, I'll be graduating with the degree. So I, I mean, uh, I'm pretty happy. It, it seems like it's gone by in a flash because of COVID and everything, but I mean, I'm happy I, I was able to go through this program. And it sounds like certainly differentiated from a lot of the common business school or entrepreneurship schools within existing schools, the the program there sounds certainly more supportive of the idea of why not just go start a business. It sounds more applicable. Any key takeaways that you've actually applied to Zing or that you just think are generally applicable to any startup that you've learned? Yeah, I think that, um, well, a lot of my, my professors are all experienced entrepreneurs. Like, one of my professors, he owned all of the five guys in Florida. Another one of my professors, he has a, a business in Tallahassee at the, at the uh, he started with, I think at the Mag Lab. So Tallahassee actually has the most powerful magnets in the entire world. Um, and so it's called the Mag Lab here. It's very cool. Uh, they do a lot of testing out there with 
different kind of magnetic fields and stuff like that. Yeah, just don't so walk he, in with your, your keys in your pockets. Yeah, and, he, and he's like a scientist. So he has a PhD in like engineering. So he, he takes like a very scientific approach to entrepreneurship, which is something that I've kind of taken away is that like entrepreneurship, there is a framework that you can use to be successful. It's like, if you if you follow a certain framework it is a pathway towards success as long as you as long as you never quit like um the main way that people fail i think today is that they quit like 95 percent to 99 percent once you quit that's and you like basically give in it's like running a sprint running sprints so you got to keep running the sprints no matter how painful it gets sometimes no matter how much you like go into the red like Oftentimes my bank account will go into the red and it, it's a struggle for sure. And then you want to give in and then you want to uh, just like go back to like nine to five and stuff like that. But you got to realize that with all the, the lows, there's an equivalent high. And that's uh, definitely a thing with entrepreneurship is that you can have a lot of highs and lows in the same day. Um, like recently we made that delivery to the Miami Paramount World Center which is that 750 foot tall building in downtown Miami and just going out there and going up to the top of that building to like the rooftop party and stuff like that. You just, you're able to see like the fruits of your labor and some of the seeds you planted, like coming actually growing and uh, um, materializing. So, yeah, I mean, it's, and in this case, it's a true reflection from the balcony. Um, We'll definitely link that video here so everyone can see it. Uh, I think most impressive to me from all of that was the fact that the professors at this school are seasoned entrepreneurs and I in academia, it is almost hard to sell having classes on entrepreneurship where maybe the professor has always just been in theory and hasn't gone out and failed or had those lows or gone to the red as you've spoken. Uh, It's one thing to be in the, the theoretical end, it's a totally different thing to be, as you've mentioned to a couple times, eating the ramen noodles and uh, needing to <laughs> hustle for another contracting gig just to make sure that your personal project can keep afloat. And that that's definitely what sets this college apart is that they only hire experienced entrepreneurs as professors. And these professors are just here to like give back. They, they don't have to be here. So they're it's, it's, um, it's a very cool perspective to see like these successful entrepreneurs and what it took to get there. And they do talk about their failures and it's, it makes the whole thing very relatable, especially now that I'm actually starting up a business, like learning from them and seeing some of the mistakes they made has been very helpful to, uh, learning about the stuff, like learning about like the pitfalls that I should avoid. That's awesome. Ian, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, entrepreneur, contractor, guy that just does it all. It's been a pleasure, and you know, good luck with everything else with everything else with Zing. Um, if I ever see Zing, Zing in my area, I'll be sure to get a non-soggy hamburger delivered right to my my balcony. Um, right. I'm excited for what the future holds for you. Uh, thanks, Brendan, and thanks for having me on the podcast. I really appreciate it, and um, yeah. Looking forward to uh, seeing this podcast grow. Take care, man.